Okay. All right, let's go ahead and get seated. All right, you bunch of Baptists. All right, let's go ahead and get seated because we have limited time to get started today. First of all, thank you so much for coming this afternoon. It's a, a really good turnout. I'm very thankful. I'm hoping that it would create a lot of stress on Chris and Sandy and Mark. So your presence has been grateful to help us do that. So, uh, But anyway, um, I'm glad you're here. And just to remind you that immediately following this time together, Mark and uh, Grace Covenant are going to have their service here at 4 o'clock. So you're welcome to stay and encourage you to stay if you can. Uh, I'm looking forward to that here. And we're thanking God for all that's happening up in Rock Hill and continue to pray for that. Don't forget that as far as your list of prayer requests. So it's going to be very informal. What we're going to be doing is I'm going to have Mark and Sandy and Chris up here on the stage here. They'll have their microphones. The questions that came in, uh, which were all good questions, what I've taken, all of those questions, and I've tried to categorize them in similar sections so that we don't repeat a lot of things. And uh, there are a few questions we may not get to, and just for the sake of time, we'll do our best to do so. And it depends on how long they answer. And if you need clarification on anything they say, I would encourage you to talk to them afterward uh, or even later on. I mean, these guys aren't going anywhere, Lord willing. And uh, we're going to continue to uh, pray for that, that God will keep them here with us. Very thankful for Sandy, very thankful for Chris and Mark and all the work they've put in so far with their elder training. This is a historic event in this church. This is the first time this has happened for a long time in this church for elder ordination process. And so we're thankful to God for God raising these men up. So let me begin with prayer. And then Sandy and Chris and Mark, if you guys will come up here, we'll get started, okay? All right, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this today. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to gather here in this place. Thank you for these men that you have raised up for ministry. I pray, God, as we gather here, as we learn more about where their heart is, their thinking biblically, Lord God, that we would grow in our love for them and support them. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us all clarity of thought and help us, Lord, to learn to love Christ more even through this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to step out of the way and just ask the questions. As if you all come up. All right, now this is not Ligonier. So I'm I'm not obviously I'm not looking for, you know, stuff to confound them at all. Okay. So we want to keep it simple, straightforward. So the first area is going to be what you probably would expect, and that's along the lines of salvation and the calling in your life for being an elder, pastor, and family life. So I'm going to give it to you as I received it. And this is for all three of you, okay? Uh, can you briefly recount how the Lord saved you? Um, where you were raised in a Christian home, or if you were raised in a Christian home, and if so, was there a specific reason you remember maturing or growing more serious about your faith? Morning is what we're after. How you came to know Christ and how you've grown in Christ since then. I'll start with that one. Um, I was not raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a home where we were taught to be morally decent. And uh, 
walked an aisle when I was six years old and then was baptized at 12 years old, but was not a believer. And so when I went to college, I was an atheist and thought Christians were gullible because they believed what their parents told them. And so through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ and one of the uh, staff people there, God used that to help me to understand that the Bible was reliable and that I could trust in the Bible. And then later on, God helped me see my need for him and for, for repentance and faith. And in about 1990, I was in college, and uh, the, the Lord called me to himself, and that's when I became a believer. Uh, it was not straight uh, to the top of sanctification at that point. It was rocky for a few years, for sure. Uh, but God used uh, the ministry of many men to, to help me, including John MacArthur, a lot of his books, and some other, uh, some other ways to continue to, to sanctify me and call, call me to him closer and closer. And uh, in terms of uh, ministry and uh, being an elder, I think we have a question about that later too, but uh, I didn't have a, a call or a feeling uh, for that particular ministry until a few years ago, uh, but God's continually been working in my life. Well, I was raised in a Christian home, um, was in church every time the doors were opened, but at the same at the same time, I, I lived in a house where we really didn't talk about Christ or the gospel or read the scriptures together much during the week. Um, so I, I had a very superficial knowledge, um, but I was saved at an early age. Over the course of my life, you know, I would go through these periods where I would drift for a while and then I would repent and come back and then I would drift and come back. And it wasn't really until probably, I, I don't know, I was in my early 30s that I... I had drifted, and I came back, and I, I really, it stuck, and something was different. Um, and it was th at that point that I really started studying the scriptures on my own. Um, sorry. Oh, okay. Um, it was at that point I really started studying the scriptures on my own, and, um, yeah, I mean, things have just been remarkably different since then. But, I, I mean, I was fortunate enough that I grew up in, a, a Christian home where I, I knew what the truth was. I never remember a time where I doubted the Bible, you know, doubted its its truthfulness. Um, so in that regard, I was I was very fortunate. Test. Okay. Uh, for those that may not know who I am, because I see a lot of faces, and if you've been here within a year, you probably don't know who I am. I'm Mark Corral, uh, Grace Covenant Church. I just first want to thank this ministry, thank Pastor Charles. Uh, Brother Allison and the whole ministry here, y'all have been such a blessing to us and our church plant. Uh, so just thank you so much, everybody here, and you're in such a wonderful church here at Covenant Baptist, and uh, we're just so grateful uh, for the support here. So uh, I, I was raised Roman Catholic. I went through all the sacraments, um, uh, graduated high school, went through my confirmation class. Uh, I was saved, deceived in my mind. I was going to heaven because I was part of the true church. Therefore, I could go live how I wanted to live now, and I distinctly remember being a freshman at uh, College of Charleston, uh, doing all kind of sinful things with the presumption that God has forgiven me as I'm doing it. It was very awful, um, and it was the Lord allowing me to continue to sink deeper and deeper into sin, which I never thought I would do, being 15, 16, 17. Now I'm 18, 19 doing these things, and it was as if the Lord sort of took the blinders off uh, to my sin. Uh, one day, and being raised Catholic, I knew there was a God. I knew there was a standard of holiness. So I, I, I knew there, you know, was that. 
And at that point, I felt like I was totally beyond saving and that I was condemned to hell and I deserved it. I went through a period of, you know, two or three months of uh, depression, just thinking I, I deserve to go to hell, I shouldn't be alive, um, and went back to Catholic Church, maybe God would save me, and didn't feel anything there. And then I heard the true gospel uh, of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm hesitant to tell people that I heard it on TV, okay, but it wasn't a Benny Hinn type of uh, evangel, you know, um, gospel, prosperity gospel. It was the gospel. I don't know who it was. But it was repentance, faith, God has grace and mercy, but you must repent. And I remember my dorm room at College of Charleston, multiple nights crying out to the Lord to save me. Uh, and then from there, like the burden, uh, you know, like on Christian's back in, in the Pilgrim's Progress was totally lifted. I was a new person, uh, knew God had saved me. And from then, I truly believed that God would, would, I always felt like I desired to pastor. I desired to learn God's word. I desired to teach it. I began to teach it to, to my whole family. Of course, they didn't. They weren't very receptive because they were still Roman Catholic, and uh, but we're, we're, you know, great relationship now. But I always knew that that I enjoyed teaching, and I always, I guess, kind of knew that the Lord would bring me into pastoral ministry. So that was 2002 when I was saved. Uh, so then life happens, get married, have children, kind of set it on the shelf, and it was probably back in 2015 where that that uh, aspiration to go into pastoral ministry came back. So I started to understand expositional preachings, learned about it, uh, learned about Reformed theology, uh, went to preaching conferences, pastoral conferences, uh, and then the Lord just sort of opened the door, uh, and that's kind of where we planted the church uh, a few years ago uh, with Pastor Swan's help and y'all's help, and that leads me here today. So that's kind of the uh, short story of the long, long story. Okay, so you actually kind of answered, you and Sandy both answered the question of the call into the ministry of elder. Chris, just elaborate on your part, uh, how God gave you the desire to be an elder. I, it, it's kind of interesting because I'm an introvert, and I hate being in front of groups of people like this and having all eyes on me. Um, that being said, starting probably 2011 or so, I just had more and more opportunities both at the church we were at before we came here, um, as well as at work, to get in front of people and to to at least get used to it. Um, so it, it was just weird the, the way that things lined up. And in hindsight, it's really neat to just look at the way that God put all these things in my life to kind of lead me in a certain direction. I definitely would not have gone otherwise. But I really, I never, I mean, I got asked to be a Sunday school teacher, and I said, okay, I can do that. Then I got asked to be a deacon, and okay, I can do that. Well, then I was asked to be the chairman of the deacons. Well, okay, sure, I can do that. So um, we, were, we were here for, I can't remember how long it's been, um, probably a year and a half or two years before Charles and Alton called me in one evening to ask if I would be willing to serve as elder. So I said, well, let me pray about it and talk to my wife about it, but um, just in praying about it and, and kind of just looking back at the way that God had put all of these things in my past, I'm like, well, sure, I can, I can at least try to do that, which it's been kind of a long process, but um, thankfully Charles has been patient with me, and uh, yeah, so here we are. Excellent. So following up on that, um, for all three of you again, what are some of the things that you try to do to lead your family spiritually and biblically? Sandy, start. 
Yeah, we every day we uh, try to make sure we read the scriptures together. We do something every day, and uh, we we read the scriptures, or we may be in a a book that's talking uh, one of the quality books that you would you would know and love. Uh, so we have a, a family time together in the evenings where we read and we pray together, and we talk about things. And then, as most of you, all day long we're talking about. Uh, the, uh, Deuteronomy 6-7, we're talking about as we're on our way, uh, whatever we're doing, we're talking about God and the scriptures and uh, holiness and living and holding each other accountable. Stephanie and I, every morning together, we uh, try to read together and also to pray together. Right now we're, in, we're redoing uh, Holiness by J.C. Ryle, going through that. We've gone through several books together. And so that's very helpful. And then we, we also just... Uh, we, we try to hold each other accountable in in our our lives. Our kids are very good about that with me. Uh, they don't have to do too much with Stephanie, but they let me know, hey, Dad, uh, why are you doing that? <laughs> so, um, But, yeah, we, we have some things that are formal, and then we have a lot of things that are informal in our lives to make sure that we're uh, staying on track. Yeah, we – I mean, it's kind of a lot of the same stuff. I mean, as so many families here do, I mean, we we have our Bible time that we try to do every day, whether it's just reading through the scriptures. We've got the Family Worship Bible Guide, and we will just walk through that and ask the questions and talk about it a bit. Um, we've got the book, um, The Gospel Made Simple for Children, I think is the title of it. We're working through that one now as a family. So just doing things like that. And then, of course – you know, just as, as learning opportunities may arise, you know, whether it's when we're, you know, when one of the kids is misbehaving, you know, we want to take those opportunities just to say, hey, this is wrong, but not just because we say so, but because, you know, there's an authority greater than us that you're accountable to. So just taking those times and trying to be consistent with, you know, putting that before them every day. Uh, yeah. Test, test, echo both. We got into the routine of family worship when we had three children, and I've seen the blessing of daily family worship, um, and we protect that time. So unless something absolutely pulls us away, it's just a routine for us. The children know after our dinner chores, they're going to sit on the couch to wait for Dad to open the Bible and, and read and teach. Um, we also sing. Uh, I sing very poorly, uh, but if you come to my house, I sing very loudly. And uh, sometimes I stop singing so I can hear my beautiful daughter sing. Uh, but family worship and singing, I think Martin Luther had said, you know, aside from uh, reading the Word of God, like singing is the most, one of the most beneficial things to our soul. And I truly agree, agree with that. So singing is, um, in the mornings also we do the Baptist Catechism. I'll lead that at the, at the breakfast table. So we'll go through one of those questions per week uh, to memorize those. And then, of course, my wife does a wonderful job of nourishing them throughout the day and homeschooling centered around uh, the Word of God. And then, you know, my wife and I, we, uh, when she's not sick and pregnant, we uh, love to just talk. And we just, you know, in the evenings, that's kind of how we generally spend our times is just, you know, sitting at the couch and, and just talking. We've gone through various Bible studies. It's been a while. We need to do more of that. But um, so those are some of the things. It's just really having a gospel-centered home and everything centered around Christ, his word. We look to it constantly and to nourish us, to lead us, and to guide us. Excellent. Thank you so much, all three of you. And um, the next topic is one that has no controversy, eschatology. So, Sandy, starting with you, and I'll start with the first question. You may end up answering some of the other ones as we move through, and this will be for all three of you all again. Among the three main eschatological views, the right, the wrong, and the wronger, 
I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. The pre-mill, the post-mill, and the ah-mill. Which one? <laughs> which one do you fall under? And please give the reason, at least one reason why. All right. Okay. Uh, I think you think you have those in the wrong order about right and wrong and wronger, but. Um, Anyway, there really should be a fourth one listed there uh, because there should be a distinction made between historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Uh, so that was the question, but uh, you really need to, to make sure that you understand the difference in those. Um, I have been working through this recently uh, because we've had to and, and because it's interesting. But um, So when you, when you approach something like this, there's a lot that goes on, not just the one that feels the best, which is obviously post-millennialism. That's the, the funnest one to be because you think you're going to be victorious in the end. But um, how you interpret Scripture, how you approach the Bible, um, what your view is about Israel and the church, there's a whole lot that goes on in terms of where you land on these things. And it's, it's made even more difficult because you have so many people who are very well respected throughout history that are uh, giants of the faith that have thought differently about this particular topic. So you don't approach this with the idea that anybody that thinks differently than you is obviously wrong. Uh, that's, that's not humble enough. You need to approach something like this with a lot of humility. Uh, that being said, uh, recently I have, I have been uh, leaning more, and I, I find myself right now, if you ask me, and I had to come down on one of those positions, it would be post-millennial. I have a lot of respect for the historic premillennial position. Uh, the way that I've heard it recently uh, by a guy named Rodney Stortz, and uh, also there are many people that hold this. Michael Schultz is also another guy that talks very intelligently about that. The reason is because I think historically when you look at the arc of redemption and what God is doing, you look at Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 42, Matthew chapter 28, Matthew 13, the kingdom parables, uh, the way that, that God is working and the way that he's going to be victorious through history. I think the Great Commission is the Great Commission not because it's a great idea, but because it's actually going to accomplish great things. And so if I had to, to, to be one right now, I would say uh, post-millennial. Now, there's problems with that view, and there are some real problems when I read Zechariah. Major problems. I don't know what to do with those problems. Also, Isaiah chapter 65. <laughs> Yeah, you might be able to do that, but um, you can do it on your turn there. Uh, <laughs> and we'll thank you for it. Uh, but uh, Isaiah 65, that's another issue. Uh, also, there's some, everybody is taking things figuratively and literally at different points. And so it's very difficult uh, to know exactly where you should do those things. But I feel, I feel somewhat comfortable where I am now, but again, I, I really do like the, um, the way that some people explain historic premillennialism. I'm less concerned about the timing of the millennium than I am with the relationship between Israel and the church. So this is something I also have been uh, kind of studying up on a little more lately out of necessity because, you know, as, as the joke goes, you know, for a long time I was just kind of pan-millennial, it'll all pan out in the end. And it, you know, for, you know, growing up especially, I was already in a superficial church, so I'm seeing the left behind stuff come out, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, that seems terrible, but sure, if that's what the Bible says, then so be it. But, you know, as I've studied through it, I also am kind of, you know, I'm not dogmatic about it. I could totally be wrong, but I'm leaning post-millennial as well, and it's because I know that 
Christ is reigning now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's going to reign until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And I just looked through that, and, I mean, Christ is building his church. So the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Well, I mean, that sounds victorious. And I know that there is suffering that we're going to go through during our Christian life. And, I mean, we're in a, sp a spiritual war. And there's always going to be suffering that's a part of the war, regardless of whether you end up victorious. Um, so that's, that's the way I'm leaning at this point. And, you know, just thematically, I think when you look back through the Psalms, as Sandy was saying, you just see that victory and you see Christ you know, building his church. You, you see those themes come up over and over again. And yes, you know, I'm, there's problems and I'm still, I'm, I'm waiting now with bated breath to, to listen to Mark. <laughs> okay. Well, I, so I, I'm leaning post-millennial, and I agree with what was said that I think each position kind of has some challenges in, in, in Scripture. Certain texts kind of throw a, a bug in the ointment, I think, for each of them. And there are great men of the faith who have differed on this uh, vastly throughout the millennial. Um, I'm on the side of Jonathan Edwards, so I I'm, I'm think I'm doing pretty good there. But uh, but I see, yeah. So the post, so the millennial. If you if you're unfamiliar, it's it's what to do with in Re uh, Revelation 20, where there Christ reigns a thousand years. So he comes and he binds Satan, so that he will not deceive the nations, and he reigns a thousand years. And so premillennial is Christ coming before that thousand years, and then a, and then a uh, a literal thousand year reign on earth. The postmillennial is that Christ comes after the millennial reign, which is a figurative number used in Revelation uh, to denote a long period of time of Christ reigning, ruling on earth. And then the amillennial is that there is no millennial on the earth, that the millennial is in heaven with people who have died in Christ who are reigning right now in heaven. Okay, so just kind of a, a quick summary. Um, but I do believe that there is many Old Testament prophecies that the Jews saw and the prophets saw that there is an actual reign of Christ that all the nations in the in the world will bow to Christ um, that the glory the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be spread across all the waters of the sea Habakkuk chapter 2 um, so you have all of these prophecies of uh, the rule and reign very being, being very real uh, and then you have Jesus who came and the first message he gave was repent for the kingdom of heaven is here it's it's now uh, it, it's it's here uh, he also said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom has, has come upon you. Uh, and then in that same text, he says that how can, a, how can one uh, take the uh, plunder of the strong man unless he binds him first, then he can take his plunder. I see that mirrored in Revelation 20 where Satan is bound. He's not totally inept. He still works in this world, but he's bound in Revelation 20 to not deceive the nations. So if you think about before Christ came, the nations were deceived because outside Israel you had pagan worship. Now you have Christians being the salt and light of the world, and the nations are no longer deceived by Satan. So the gospel can go forward in the kingdom of Christ being built slowly but surely over time. And so that's the idea of post-millennial. Um, there are ups and downs. There are uh, turmoils or persecutions. But I believe that is to victory and not to defeat, that Christ will, will continue to build his church that all nations will eventually bow down to him. And we see that over the last 2,000 years. We see that the kingdom of, of Christ has increased. Uh, we see it uh, from the last 2,000 years. So again, I say tell people I lean post-millennial because I'm not dogmatic uh, about it. Uh, and, you know, I'm brothers with, uh, with, with all spectrums of, of the eschatology. So. Okay, so since I'm the only loser down here, let me, 
let me add my thought on this. this actually, is a good follow-up question. And to be clear, there's a lot of elder bodies among Reformed churches that have men in their elder body that have different views on this. And so you have to learn how to work with each other among the context, context of the differing eschatological views. So with that, there's a question that was given along those lines. Because of the different views of eschatology in our church, and Mark, you're welcome to uh, answer into this too because you're going to have the same thing that we do. Uh, because of the different eschatolog eschatological views in our church, how do you answer questions on the subject knowing that it may conflict with the position of the pastor or other elders? Yeah, that's a good question. What, what I would do is, first of all, we have to know each other and know each other's views so that we can make sure that when people come to us, they're not misrepresenting each other's views. That's not good. And we need to shut that kind of thing down right away when people would misrepresent. Uh, we, we also need to understand this is a secondary issue. This is not uh, a primary salvation issue, although it does impact how you do ministry. So you have to, you have to um, deal with this according to the level of importance uh, that it has. And, and so we realize there's room for disagreement on this. And so we're gracious. Uh, we realize that we could be wrong about something or maybe wrong about a point within our view. And, and so that's generally, we, we just have, have to know how to handle conflict. And we also want to make sure that we're, we're not slandering our brothers while we're doing uh, the work of agreeing with someone else that, that we, especially when somebody comes to you and you're in an echo chamber and you agree with them, uh, you don't want to start uh, putting your other brothers down uh, because of, of the way they think about things. And so it's difficult to do that, but we must always give grace where there's, um, where there's the ability to give grace. If there's not the ability, then we have to stand firm on that, and we have to talk amongst ourselves. And we also have to be among the body enough to know, to be able to, to preempt problems when, when they would come along, and so that we would know what people are thinking about these things and how important it is to other people. And then along those lines, too, to help people understand what primary, secondary, tertiary, all these issues are and where they fall and, and why you should care a little less about this or a little more about this in, in that particular instance. I mean, I, th I think we have to keep in mind that the only reason we understand anything of the gospel, anything of who God is, is because of his grace. I mean, none of us is, is deserving. I mean, we, we are completely relying on him to open our eyes and help us to see these things. So knowledge puffs up. And that's something that, I mean, we, we can't we can't allow that to happen. And, and I think part of the way we do that is by keeping the first things first. We need to focus on the things that unite us. And I mean, we're united in Christ. We're all saved by the same blood. He died, he died for his people. And if, if you are in Christ, we're all in this together. So, I mean, we, we need to just recognize that, again, like Sandy was saying, I mean, it's, it's not a thing. Yes, it's important because it's in the scriptures and everything in there is important it can, and it's all beneficial to us. Um, but at the same time, I think we just have to show each other the same grace that Christ has showed to us. Uh, before you go, I want to mention one more. There's a lot of differences on the, the views, but there's a whole lot of things that we all do anyway, no matter what our view is. And so if we spend more time thinking about what unites us than what divides us, that's generally 
a better way to go about it. You may have a different reason for why you're evangelizing, but you're evangelizing. You should be doing those things. So that's a kind of um, important thing to think about. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say briefly is that at the end of the day, the, the commands of Scripture for the Christian is the same. We are to all obey by taking the truth of God's word outside the four walls of the church to the culture and speak truth uh, in the gospel. That is what saves. So at the end of the day, um, you know, the commands are the same. And uh, also I was going to say briefly, like our, our churches, um, uh, one of our churches, I don't want to call it tagline, but Semper Reformanda. That's what is on, under our church name, always reforming. So, I mean, 10 years from now, because us three have the mentality that we need to always be reforming our doctrine to Scripture and, and uh, iron sharpens iron, like we could fall somewhere else 10, 10 years from now, right? I think we're all open to that. And that's what we all should be open, no matter what our eschatological views or other views are. Much. Okay, so here we go. We're going to change topics. We have a couple more along those lines, but if we have time, we'll come back to those. Um, but let's get into the topic of the ministry as, the, as an elder. And um, <clears throat> the first one would be as an under-shepherd, which... All of us, I'm sure, I hope in this room understand that an elder is a shepherd slash is a pastor. Uh, so as an under-shepherd at CBC and also uh, Grace Covenant, what would be your three highest priorities? Okay, three highest priorities. First of all, it would be to, um, to be a good example to, to have personal holiness that would then allow me to be a good example, as Peter says, 1 Peter 5. Uh, that presupposes that I'm going to be among the brethren and that you could see me so that I could be an example to you so that I would be involved in the lives of the people here. So to, to be able to say with a straight face to all of you, follow me as I follow Christ. And that is a, uh, a pretty big ask of anybody. But So that's, that's the first priority. And then the second priority would be uh, praying for you all as a body, knowing your needs, praying for your needs, because I believe that God hears and answers our prayers and that he uses prayer as a means to, uh, to bless and to take care of his body. Uh, Philippians 1.19 says that, and also Philemon uh, verse 22 says that, that God uses prayer as a means. And so I believe that. Also, uh, to teach and to keep uh, keep good doctrine and good teaching in front of, of everyone here and to protect from false teaching. So those would be the three things I would think would be the first priorities for me. Um, I'm kind of a, some of the same stuff. I mean, we're, we're called to be devoted to Scripture and prayer. So I think the first two priorities are laid out pretty clearly for us. I mean, clearly there's a lot of stuff that falls under Scripture and prayer. You know, we've got to... We've got to feed ourselves, but at the same time, we're called to feed the flock. So we've got to, to, to be rooted in the scriptures and know the scriptures and be able to come in and see when false teaching is arising and, and rebuke that. And we've got to just continually put the truth um, both in front of ourselves and in front of you all. So those, those two things are, of course, extraordinarily important. And then um, I would say just pursuing unity in the truth. I mean, we don't want unity for the sake of unity. We're, we're united in Christ. We're united in the truth. So I think that's number, that would be the third. Uh, so if I had to narrow it down to three, uh, I would, A, guard myself, 
guard the flock. If I can't guard myself, then I can't guard the flock. So guard myself, guard the flock. The way to guard the flock is through the word and prayer, which we see in the early church, the example. Um, and then aside, you know, those being my, my priority, as the Lord grows in that area, um, i got four priorities. Uh, the next priority is to grow uh, community within our church plant. So we're a new church plant, a lot of new folks coming in. Um, so we don't have the longevity. And so that's a priority in my church plan is to grow uh, community and to do that by example. Uh, and then I'm going to add, I'm, my fourth priority is part of my third, is uh, to grow a gospel-centered community in Rock Hill. And that's, um, that's one of my big priorities with the church is for Rock Hill to be a city that bows the knee to Christ, that where people realize that Rock Hill loves Jesus Christ. All right, excellent. Thank you. Following on the heels of that, since you are an elder and you have a great deal of responsibility to the flock, which can require a lot of your time, a lot of your time away from your family and away from your own personal life, how do you endeavor to ensure your own soul is nourished? Well, practically that can be hard, but um, intellectually it's pretty easy. You stay in the Word and you pray. So those two things are very clear in Scripture. Uh, I think making sure that my family is taken care of, uh, that, that's the basis. If, if that's not taken care of, then I'm disqualified to begin with. So taking care of my family, making sure that we are, are a solid unit is very important to me. And then from that uh, launching point, uh, anything could can happen. But prayer and reading the scriptures uh, are are the that's the, the bread and butter of Christian. It's not just elder life; it's Christian life, and so that's what we all have to do. And so that's what I would do. Yeah, this almost seems like Sunday school, where as long as you say Jesus, you're going to be right a lot of the time. Uh, read. Read my Bible and say my prayers. I mean, as simple as it sounds. And, I mean, that's a lot of that is just discipline and learning to have that self-discipline to, to maintain those habits. And, I mean, we also, I mean, we don't, it should be habitual, but we also don't want it to be just going through the motions, which is why I constantly call out to God, God, just give me the desire that I'm lacking. Because, I mean, sometimes you go through these seasons where, you just you don't have that zeal that maybe you had at one point, but I know that you know God can renew that in my heart. So, constantly recognizing my dependence on Him, even for that as well. I'll just add to that: having other godly men uh, as accountability, I think, is very important for elders. So you and Alton and Pastor David Spears, who's not here, who, who comes up, and other men uh, being able to hold me accountable. Right. To be able to ask the hard questions, you know, how is your relationship with your wife? How is your relationship with your kids? You know, what are you doing to spiritually nourish yourself? Um, so all of that and some. OK, following on that one, uh, these men have wonderful wives. I mean, Stephanie, for some reason, married Sandy. And Chris, Miss Carrie and also Allie with Mark. And these women are critical to your ministry. What do you believe in your church life as an elder? What role do they play at all? What is that? 
that wasn't one of the questions. I don't know how to answer that at all. I'm just. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you're you're right. Um, there's no good reason why I'm married to Stephanie, uh, other than it's, it's a picture of God's grace to me continually. And uh, you know, her role is to support me and and the work that God has given me to do on Earth. And uh, we are constantly in communication with each other. And uh, you know how it is if you're if you're a man and you're married, you're you're constantly trying to. Um, make your wife's life as easy as you possibly can in terms of allowing her to be able to read the scripture and, and, and flourish and to become uh, just the most fulfilled that she can be. And she does a wonderful job of, of um, I, I believe this with all my heart, if I told her that God was telling us to do something, she would drop everything and we would do it. There's no question about it. And so uh, I think her role is to help me in that. There are obviously other things that a lot of women are doing all the time in church, uh, behind the scenes, uh, in their families. She's raising, uh, she's you know doing a job at homeschool, raising our kids. All these things are uh, things that I would have uh, have to struggle to do, but she does them with ease. And so, uh, in terms of her ministry in the church, what does she need to be doing in the church? I don't think that there's anything in particular she needs to do here. You know, in a lot of places they say, oh, you're the pastor's wife. What are you going to be doing in the church? That's not the way we do things here. Thank the Lord for that. But that does happen in other places. And so um, I, don't, I don't think there's anything in particular other than just to be uh, do what she's doing now. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely very blessed to have Carrie because if you if you would have gone back to when we got married and asked, okay, w- would you all ever consider homeschooling? I mean, we would have both looked at each other and laughed, I'll be honest. But it's just, it's, you know, as, as things have come up, you know, in my own growth, you know, when my eyes were open to the doctrines of grace, for instance, I mean, that's a pretty, that's significant. If you've gone through that, you know, that's a significant thing. And, you know, I, I went to her with that, okay, here, here's what I'm seeing now, here, here's how I think this changes things practically. Okay, I mean, she's, she's just going with the flow. So, and I mean, whenever we came here, it was the same thing. And this church, when we, when we first started coming here, we were still meeting in the house. It was completely, it was a, it was a completely different environment than we were accustomed to. There were next to no kids here. There were very few. And, you know, it's just, it was, it, it was just different. But she just, you know, she knew that I thought it was the right thing. I believed it was the right thing. And she believed it was the right thing. She believed that... You know, I hadn't gone nuts. I, you know, I was, I was, I was praying about it. She was praying about it. So, I mean, she's she supported me through a number of very difficult situations. And I mean, I think that's that's what she needs. That's what our wives need to do. I mean, we we rely on them for that support. And I mean, now she's homeschooling. She's helping with the homeschool co-op. It's it's stuff that we never would have imagined. But I mean, she's she's doing a great job. Yeah, and so th- there is no office of first lady. There's no office of pastor's wife, elder's wife in the church. So I think we got to get some of our programming out of us, you know, that we shouldn't look to the pastor or any of the elder's wives as being a church leader, as being the women's leader or whatever. Now, they may have gifts and callings that they want to do that, uh, but the elders and the pastor's wives' number one calling uh, is their family and their husband. 
And uh, I do believe that there are qualifications for elder wives because First uh, Timothy 3 says so. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. I believe it's referring to both the deacons and the elder wives. Uh, and I'm a very blessed man that my wife meets these qualifications. Um, I think it would be unwise to appoint someone to an elder where a wife is the gossiper of the church. Um, I've been in churches like that. It doesn't work. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's that's the role uh, of, of elders' wives is, is no different than the role of, of any other wife uh, is to support their family and, and to um, uh, support their husband. All right, excellent. All right, again, with cle- ecclesiology and how we function as an elder in the church, uh, regarding this church, uh, this question would be for Sandy and Chris. And the same two questions, I'm going to mix them together, you'll see why, would be for the church you're going to be soon taking a pastorate in at Grace Covenant. So here we have it. What do you believe to be the greatest challenge to be an elder in this church? And along the same lines, what do you believe would be a weakness in our church that we could improve upon? So there's a challenge that you see we face as elders in the church. This church specifically, and then the church you're in, Mark. And then what would you believe to be the weakness? All right. Sandy? Well, a challenge in, in this church, I think, is a challenge in, in any church, maybe not specific to, to us, which is to, uh, to be distracted from our first love and to um, put things that are not as important. Our, our, uh, our preferences become raised to the level of principles and so we have uh, we have the tendency to think that issues that are not as important would be important so I've I've talked about that a little bit uh, before Uh, but when we lose our first love we get our eyes off of what our main goal is which is to to glorify God and the ministry of the church is to to bring people to the fullness of the stature of Christ and to to grow us as a body in quality, I, I think that when we get our eyes off of that, then we have um, we have some serious issues. So we have to address uh, that kind of. Thing. The second part of that question was, oh, the the, weak, the weakness of our particular church. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. I think um, we may have a tendency here to, at times when we don't agree with every, we, we might have a teacher that we hear and we we don't like something that this, that this teacher has said we throw out all the all the things that teacher has ever done and so we're very hard on on people who well this guy said this so I don't I don't believe anything that this person would say and so discernment is always critical not just discerning you know Kenneth Copeland uh, is a heretic obviously but we have problems with things that are as Spurgeon would say, uh, between good and almost good or, or, or that kind of a thing. We, we sometimes, I think, would tend to discount people automatically for one thing that's off. We have to be more discerning. It takes harder work to do this. We have to be trained to do this, and it's, it's uncomfortable to do this. And so that's a weakness, I think, happens not only here, but happens in a lot of churches. Yeah, I think one challenge that's unique to this church is just the distance you know, we've got people coming from every which direction. So whereas where you see in the early church where they're meeting together daily, 
we just we, we can't do that out of just as a practical matter just because we've got people in Aiken, Orangeburg, you know, on the northeast. I mean, people are spread out all over the place. Conway. So we've got people all over the place. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, we, we have to avoid division. And I think that is more difficult here just because of how spread out people are. And then when you look at, you know, like Wednesday nights, for example, it would be great if we could all meet together. But I know there's a group meeting out at Sandy's place, and, and that's more out of necessity because people just can't get here. So, of course, the preference is, yeah, I mean, it, it's best if some people can gather elsewhere. But at the same time, it's like, okay, at what point are we, are we two different churches or, or what? So it's just I think things, things like that can, can foster division. Um, so we just need to be to be diligent working against that however we can and I think we do a lot we a lot of families here are great about combating that because you know they're they're great about inviting people over and being proactive about making sure they spend time with other families and fellowship in that way so I, I think that that certainly helps um, but yeah as far as a weakness I've never been in a church where people love the word like they do here, and obviously that's a great thing. And you want to encourage people to be in the scriptures as much as, as they can be. At the same time, though, I mean, I think, again, kind of going back to some, some stuff we were talking about earlier, I mean, we want to keep the first things the first things. We're all rooted in the gospel. We don't want to just um, just accumulate all this head knowledge that may lead us to be arrogant, and then we slip into pride, and then we slip into legalism. I mean, those are the kinds of things we want to avoid. So I, I think just because of how much we love the word, and you know, we love to read, and we love all these books, and all these doctrines, and those are great things, but we've, we've got to pray that God would protect our hearts from losing sight of the fact that Christ is our righteousness. So for Grace Covenant Church, I would say a challenge is similar to the distance. We have a lot of people that live far away, not, I think y'all have us on some of your drives, uh, but we have folks that live 40 minutes to the north, 40 minutes to the south, uh, 40 minutes to the east. Uh, and then location is also a challenge with us right now because we d we're renting a space. Um, we're not sure how much longer we're going to be, be there. Uh, and so being able to get together multiple times is a challenge, and that's going to be a challenge uh, for us for some time. I would say the weakness of our church, uh, I think as a weakness may be a, a lot of church plants, is... Uh, really fostering a community feel. Um, people come to Grace Covenant Church for the, much of the same reasons why people come here, uh, because there is a um, stance for the truth. People want to hear truth, how to filter things that happen outside of the church with a biblical worldview. That's why people come to our church, but they stay uh, for the community. And because we have so many new people, we're trying to foster that. People have left because they haven't felt um, you know, connected and so that's a weakness um, currently of our church that we're that we're trying to work on. Just because I try to tell people, hey, a lot of y'all are all, a lot of y'all are new, so don't wait around and ask for somebody to connect with you because they're sitting around waiting to, for someone else to connect with them. So, uh, but the things that we're working through and we're it's a good challenge to have, and so I'm thankful uh, for that. All right, here's a couple I'm gonna put together again. Um, what is your position on family integration with regards to church? And it's worship. And along the same lines, what is your position on the regular principle of worship as it pertains to the church service? Okay. Um, regulative principle. 
uh, it's it's a good thing. Uh, the other question, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, I think that the Bible, uh, we, we shouldn't feel free to just do whatever the Bible doesn't forbid because then we're going to run into problems. That's not the way to do it. We should do what, what the Bible mandates and what the Bible gives us uh, uh, an example of doing in, in a worship service. So, in other words, we sing together, uh, we preach the word, we fellowship, we pray. Those are the things. Now, in those, we have some freedom. We don't have to sing three hymns. We can sing five if we want. We can sing two, one. We can uh, have different people read the scripture according to biblical principles. Uh, there's some freedom. We, can, we don't have to preach for an hour. We can preach for you know, 40 minutes or whatever. So some of those things are, we do have freedom in there. So we want to make sure that we're not being legalistic about uh, exactly how things have to look. Uh, we're in a different culture here than people are around the world, and so the way those things look will will take on different forms, but the regulative principle is uh, something that we should be following. Uh, the other question was about um, the family-integrated worship. Uh, I love this. I love family-integrated worship. I think the Bible is very clear that uh, the parents are responsible for the, the discipling and the teaching of their own children, and so when we come to church together, I don't know why we would suddenly throw that out the window. Uh, however, I have seen that there are certain instances where you could, you could possibly have a, a, a class that was dedicated to, um, to a, like a catechism class like we're doing now, uh, where someone uh, may be able to not be with their entire family uh, for every minute. So I wouldn't be so strong as, thus saith the Lord on this, that your family has to be together every moment you're in the church. But I think it's a really good idea. I've seen it done uh, the other way well very rarely. We've been in a church, one other church in my whole life, where people did, did something that, was, that seemed like it was glorifying to God, where it wasn't family integrated. But everywhere else I've ever been, it's been almost a disaster. And you open yourself up for all kind of bad things. So uh, I, I'm in favor of family integrated worship. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I grew up in a context where the kids got dumped off in children's church and then the adults went to big church. And, you know, it's, it's just the kind of thing that I really, growing up, I never questioned. That's just the way that we did things. And it wasn't until much later that I realized, oh, wait, there's no biblical basis for this. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm. it's great sitting in, in here on a Sunday morning and, I mean, Sure, sometimes I'm, I'm sitting here hoping that my kids aren't the ones going to cause a distraction, but you can hear the kids in the room. And, I mean, I think it's great that you've got families there, the kids are watching the adults, they're watching their parents, and, I mean, they're, they're seeing how important this is. I mean, this, isn't, this is no small thing, what we do on Sunday morning. I mean, we're coming to worship our Creator, and, you know, I'm, yeah, absolutely, I'm, I'm all for the family-integrated approach. Um, and as far as the regulative principle, yeah, I mean, I'm in agreement with that as well. I mean, we saw the the issue that we had in the Old Testament when Aaron's sons, you know, approached the Lord with strange fire. So clearly he cares how we worship him. So if he has prescribed the, the methods that we are to use, then, yeah, absolutely, that's what we should do. So, and if you don't know what the regulative principle is, it's uh, you worship as God prescribes, nothing else, as opposed to the normative principle is you can do whatever you want as long as God says don't do it. Okay, So I think family integration comes out of the regulative principle. There's one church. There's one church. 
and God commands that one church to gather together on his day. And so when we have separate churches, we're separating God's church. You're not really assembling the church together when you, you know, shift off the kids into another worship experience. Also, we see patterns throughout Scripture that shows us that the children should be with the parents throughout worship. You know, when Paul wrote his epistles, when he commanded the children to obey their parents, it's, it's directly at the children. It's not, okay, now go tell the children in children's church that they should obey their parents. And so that letter was read to the churches, whether it was the church at Ephesus, Colossae. Uh, it was children, so the letter being read is being read to the children. So the pastor ought to be preaching not just to the adults, but also to the children who are in the room because they're part, uh, at least, um, you know, they're part of the, the visible church, if you will. Uh, so family integration, regulative uh, principle. The, the devastating impact of not having children in church with their parents is it sets up um, what happens most oftentimes, that you alluded to this, is that parents then think, okay, the church is responsible for uh, training my children in the things of the Lord, and they totally abdicate their duty to the church. Uh, and so that's, that's a natural outcome of not having family integration. Hey, we got a great children's church. We're going to teach your kids on their level. You ever heard that? They're going to be able to understand the gospel on their level. Okay? Well, I'm here to say you, you talk to families who have been through solid churches, family integrated churches. By the time they're 10, 12, and God converts them, 15, 16, uh, they know most, they know, they know more theology, more great things about Christ and his holiness and his word than most parents do at an at a average church, let alone their kids. So they're ingesting it. Your five-year-old is taking it in, um, is, is, is understanding a lot more than you think they are. So. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much. This is really good. We ought to do this more often. I love asking questions. All right. So... <laughs> Exactly. Your mic's off, so. <laughs> so anyway, uh, again, with ecclesiology, on the topic of prayer, how important is praying as a congregation, uh, i.e. corporate prayer, and how, how uh, should this be done? And can the lack of corporate prayer as a congregation hinder ministry? It's important it should be done corporately. And um, I'm, I'm joking, but nobody's laughing out there. Um, no, this is, this is something we've had a lot of discussion about recently. Corporate prayer builds unity in the church. It is, uh, we're given an example in the scripture that we should be doing this. Uh, it also empowers the preaching ministry of the church. So it's something that is uh, very important. Uh, I think the original question uh, on, on this had something to do with uh, how about in our church? Uh, what about... Why are we seeing a, a problem with this on our Wednesday nights? Why don't we have as much, you know, interaction uh, with this? And I would say we have to remember a couple things. Uh, we have to remember that Sunday is the Lord's Day. Uh, Wednesday night at 6 o'clock might not be the best time for everybody to meet during the week. If it, if it is, that's wonderful. But we have to be creative in other ways that we give people the opportunity to pray together corporately. The other thing we have to be careful about is not being, again, not being legalistic about this. If we, if we have 30 people meeting in one location and we have 25 people meeting in another location and we're all praying together, 
that's okay. We don't have to have 55 people together in one place or the whole body together in one place to call it corporate prayer. Uh, There are ways to do this that glorify God, and I think we should be as creative as possible. So when we have in the future here uh, five different Wednesday night groups together at the same time and we have people meeting together and we're all praying for uh, some time together corporately as a body, as a, a gathering of believers, I think that's effective, and God will honor that. In, and in fact, you have more prayers being offered up, don't you, than having one group waiting for, for your turn if you have 50 people. Not to say there's anything wrong with all of us praying together corporately like we are gathered here today, but we have to be careful that we don't get our own ideas uh, mixed up with, with what is okay with God. I think there are times that we do this, but corporate prayer should be done. We should make opportunities for people in our church, and the elders should lead this. It should not be that we say, hey, uh, you seem to like prayer a lot. Uh, why don't you take over the prayer ministry? It should be led by the, by the people who are in leadership in the church, and we should facilitate it and, and call people to prayer if you can. And if you can be there, we, would, we want you to be there. If you can't be there, uh, then you can't be there and not hold people uh, to, to some other day besides the Lord's day to make it uh, seem like the, the, now you're not, do, you're not living for the Lord if you can't be there because of your work or because of some other thing. But uh, it is important. We should, we should try as hard as we can to facilitate this and to lead it. Yeah, and I, I mean, this is something I've struggled with too because I, I know how hard it is for people to get here on a Wednesday night because my family probably lives closer than most. And I struggle to get here at six o'clock and I've not been able to in the last couple of months. But so I don't think that who can show up on Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. is necessarily the best gauge of the prayer health of our of our church and where our church is on that issue. Um, Like Sandy said, I mean, I think we need to we need to foster opportunities for people to come together to pray because clearly it's important. Clearly, yes, I do believe the success of the ministry here, the success of the evangelism here is dependent on on the prayer and, you know, people praying for those things. And we've got to, I don't know, I mean, we just need to, to, I think we get into this tendency to just, we think about, okay, this is how we have to pray when we come together. Well, no, it doesn't have to be just that one way. I mean, I, I've been up here on Wednesday nights before and, and you know, we've got 30 people in the room and maybe four or five pray and they're beautiful prayers. And I sit there and I think, wow, I wonder if anyone is is hesitant to pray just because they're scared to follow that. And I know that me, just knowing how I used to be, just speaking in front of people, I wouldn't have wanted to do it, quite frankly. Um, and I know there are others that probably feel the same way. So, you know, maybe it's a matter of, hey, let's let's get together with four or five other people, you know, and just meet in small groups and, and have dedicated prayer time that way. Um, because maybe if people get comfortable praying in that setting, maybe the next time that we are gathered corporately, they'll be more comfortable doing it. So just things like that to also just, you know, build one another up. I mean, because we all, we are, we are to be a people of prayer. This is to be a house of prayer. It's just... We've got to start thinking outside the box a little bit just because of some of the unique challenges that we have here. I would say for our church, uh, we need to incorporate corporate prayer, and that's a challenge because location, both with people and location building, we, it's where we meet, we can't just show up and say, hey, can we use a room? I mean, there's like a process to get re- a space rented out, so that's a challenge. 
Um, I'm preaching through the Lord's Prayer right now um, in my exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, and so it's very fitting because it's been very convicting in the first three petitions on praying for uh, God's name to be honored and hallowed, his kingdom to come, and his will be done. I recently read uh, Jonathan Edwards' Humble Attempt, where he, uh, this was a decade or more after the Great, Revi- the Great Awakening, he was trying to formulate international agreements, written agreements that churches and countries would come together uh, either as churches, as families, societies, whatever, on a specific day and time. So they may not be able to make it out to the church, but they would gather, you know, uh, neighbors and they would gather and they, they would literally sign a concert of prayer where they agreed, they vowed to meet on a certain day, once a month, once a quarter, to pray for revival across the nations. Uh, and his work fell flat. Nobody, it didn't go anywhere until about 50 years later, some Baptist guys picked it up in England. One of them is William Carey, who is known as the f- uh, father of modern missions. Him and these other guys found his work, and they, out of that, they started praying for revival and started the Baptist Missionary Society, uh, which we know that was the whole start of the Baptist mission. So prayer is vital. It's important. It's been convicting me in my heart lately. Um, to do it, as you said, find unique opportunities where people can gather together uh, to pray. And the, the greatest revivals in history have always started with prayer, uh, with praying that God would move, God would open hearts, the gospel would advance. Okay, thank you, Mark. That kind of leads right into our next topic, missions, um, the outreach of the church. So regarding that, Here's one that I think could help us begin with. Do you believe we are doing what we can, uh, what we should be doing for evangelism? And why do you think we're not seeing more people get saved? Let's just start with that, and then we'll launch into some more. Well, I don't know how many people are supposed to be getting saved. Uh, Only the Lord knows that. So uh, I'm not sure... If we think that, you know, we should have hundreds every week coming in here, uh, I think the question really is, are we doing what we can as a church to facilitate maybe something that is a uh, a church-sanctioned evangelism training and an opportunity for people? And I'm all for that. I think we should train our people to be able to evangelize. If they have a desire to to do that uh, type of work, I think we should uh, to, to be, uh, if they feel, in other words, they're gifted in evangelism and they want to learn new and different ways, I think that's good. Also, um, I think in general, we need to, everybody's got to share the gospel. Um, But I will say this too, we have, we tend to think of this in terms of just going out there to the street and, and, and talking about this. We have women in our church here that are evangelizing their kids every single day. And this is the ordinary means of grace that God uses to bring people into the, into the faith. So families is the primary way. And so God is using our wives to do this, and he's, he's also uh, giving us the ability. And, and everybody here, I, that I, I think I know this about you, you're sharing the gospel with people. When you come in contact with, people with, uh, in contact with people every day, you're sharing the gospel with them. A lot of you are. Uh, we have people that come weekly that have been invited from uh, places of work that you all work at, that you're telling people about Christ and inviting them to come to our church. So to have a, a dedicated ministry where we say you need to show up on Saturday morning and, and that's the way people are going to get saved, I think that's a, a wrong way of thinking about it. But I don't think that's a bad thing. We could actually provide that for some people who would like to do that. And so I don't think it's like a, a, a 
you know, only one way to do this. We have to be evangelizing as we go through the world, telling people, sharing the gospel with them. And also, there are people that don't really feel comfortable knowing how to share their faith. We could provide a way for them to learn how to do that in a way that would be better and, uh, and then facilitate some of those things like we did with Soda City and with some other opportunities for, uh, for folks. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think we can, I think we could always do more. And I've, I've, there's more zeal in this church for evangelism than any church I've ever been a part of. I mean, especially with, with the younger folks. I mean, there's guys that are committed to go out to Planned Parenthood once or twice every week. There's guys going down to Soda City, um, guys and ladies going to Soda City to hand out tracts and to, to share the gospel, just having one-on-one conversations with people or street preaching. So, yeah, there's a lot going on here. But, I mean, I think we could always do more, and I think we just need to – I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you just – you see people utilizing the gifts that God has given them here more than any place I've been before. And, I mean, I, and I thank God for that. It's a great thing. We just need to – I don't know. I mean, we just do need to figure out how to best utilize the resources that God has given us. And yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we can be more um, intentional about those types of outreaches because I know most of the people that are going to Soda City are doing it on their own. It's nothing that's really formal within the church. Um, and, and, and I don't know to what extent it needs to be because I mean, I'm thankful we've got people who love the Lord enough and want to see the lost come to know Christ that they're willing to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could certainly, there's, there's always room for more. And I mean, even just individually, I think, okay, did I tell the cashier at the gas station today, the gospel while I was there? Well, no. So yeah, I mean, there's always, we need to be looking for those opportunities as well. Yeah, I think you both covered it. Um, there's two things that an average Christian says I could, should be doing more of that I'm not is prayer and evangelism. We all know there's people lost, dying and going to hell. And so we all, if you're a believer, you see, you want to see people saved, so we could always do more for evangelism. I don't really have much to add, although it ties back into prayer. The more that you're gathered to pray for the lost, the more that God's going to give you zeal in your heart to go out and share the gospel outside the four walls of the church. So, All right. We're making really good time, so I might have to make up some here shortly. Now, we actually have a number more. So I want to add, since... Uh, our church and Grace Covenant are heavily involved in the abortion ministry. I want to ask you guys about that for a few seconds. Now, our church has a unique situation with Moment of Hope, a sister Reformed church, First Pres. They approach it totally different than we do, and it has caused problems, no doubt about that. And uh, even up at Rock Hill... Some of your attempted outreach, both abortion and against the LGBTQ community, has caused struggle. So what, in your opinion, do you view our abortion slash ministry even to the LGBTQ community? Are we handling that the best way possible, or is there something we could do different at all? What do you think? Okay, um... I think what we're doing is okay. We are doing what we can at Planned Parenthood in terms of we have signs, we, uh, the people show up. And if you've never been there, uh, it's, it's a difficult ministry. When people show up, uh, it's contentious from the beginning of uh, when our people show up to, 
to either hold a sign or to pass out any information or to talk to anyone. You rarely have an opportunity. You have a few seconds from when they get out of their car to walk into the building to say anything at all to them. It's very difficult to do that. Uh, you, so what, but, but we do what we can because this is the moment that they're going to have an abortion. And so we need to be there, I think. What I would like for us to be able to do is to get in earlier if we could. If there was an opportunity for us to minister to the women and, and their boyfriends or husbands or whatever they are earlier and to, to partner up with some place where we could provide uh, sonograms or provide uh, some other counseling and to be able to share the gospel in a meaningful way that wasn't for 10 seconds or, or a sign, I think that would be more effective. We want to be careful that we're not pragmatists, but we also want to use our brains. And so I think what we're doing is good. We've got to keep doing what we're doing, but if we can do more, then that would also be helpful. I just, you know, I'm not as, um, I've been up to, to Planned Parenthood a few times. I'm not as involved. Chris and, and Mark would obviously be uh, better to answer this, but I don't think we should stop what we're doing. I think we should only add to what we're doing if we could uh, to find other ways to uh, minister to these women. Yeah, so a moment of hope, the group from First Pres was going down, and, I mean, they're offering to help mothers, which is great, but there was, there was no gospel going forth. And so, I mean, that's the guys and, and the, the ladies that are going down every week. I mean, that's, that's what they're doing. I mean, they're offering to help the mothers, but at the same time they recognize the only way lives are going to be changed is by the gospel. So that's, you know, we want to see babies saved. We want to see souls saved as well. And um, we're kind of working through right now just trying to figure out how i mean i i think you know the guys they're presenting the gospel in that short sliver of time that they have and i mean i think they're doing the you know they're doing all they can with the time that they have avail available right now we're trying to do a better job of uh you know trying to figure out how we can best help the mothers though because you know right now we've got a group of guys going down there and they're saying hey we can help you but then you've got mothers that are okay what can you do for me and we're trying to work through, okay, well, what can we say is available? Because it's hard to come up with general rules for something like that when you've got, you know, every situation is going to be slightly different. Yeah, I mean, you could see the same types of situations over and over, but at the same time, every situation is going to be a little different. So just trying to work through that. Um, and we're actually, we had done it for a couple of months, and then partly my fault, we missed a couple. Um, but we're going to have a, a lunch next Sunday after the service, so if you want to come and bring some lunch and meet with us, we're going to have a ministry update about what's going on at Planned Parenthood and um, have the opportunity to talk a little more about, you know, what we can do to, to help the folks going down there, or maybe some of you would want to go down there too and help, and just talking through, you know, how, how to best utilize um, the resources that God has given us to, to work in the furtherance of that ministry. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I can't speak to the Columbia um, situation. We have some guys that go up to the Charlotte Mill, which is like the busiest in the southeast. They do like 80 kills a day um, and didn't slow down a, a bit when the 12-week ban in North Carolina went into place. Uh, so they're, they're more organized. We're more organized as far as the Christian witness. There's a large Christian organization um, that are gospel-centered. I would say they're um, not quite like Moment of Hope. Uh, they, they are gospel-led, and they also have all the resources to help. So it's actually... I think a, a very good situation where our guys have been able to, to do that. Um, so I think that ministry, a lot of prayer, and I think there are t 
times if you're in that ministry where you do need to pull back uh, for a period of time, because uh, I've seen it. We've been out there uh, since 2015, not so much in the last recent history, but uh, we see people that are in it daily, almost daily, they can get a callousness uh, to the sinners, to the pro-aborts, and I think it, it, it is wise to step away, whether it's a week or two, uh, and get back into prayer and ask God to soften your heart for these folks because you know you can kind of go in that direction and start to take on the tone that the pro boards take on, which is very snarky. It's very, uh, you know, you can just kind of see that dynamic. So, I mean, they you guys kind of covered. I didn't really have much else to add. All right. Uh, going along the same line of missions, as an elder, what do you see as, uh, let me back that up, what priority do you believe overseas missions holds in a church we've talked about local missions evangelism abortion things like that here what do you think overseas missions what kind of priority should it have in a local body you can't ever say anything against any ministry of the church okay so so you can't say anything you know everything is the most important a lot of times to to, to every to, it depends on what what you're passionate about and so i joke about that because um, I think God, in, in Acts chapter 17, we see that God places us in certain places for certain times. Uh, we, were, we were born here. Uh, we have a mission field here. Our families are our mission field. Uh, our church here. Our, our duty as um, elders in the church is to train and equip the body that we have here, primarily. And then after that, we, uh, along with that, we as men are equipping our families. And so that's our initial mission field. And then we have our communities and we have our local areas. And then as we equip people and they realize that they have a, a desire and a passion for this, and maybe they have the, the ability to go to a foreign land and to witness to people and to share the gospel there, uh, we could send them out. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the primary important thing that we would do as a church, but it can definitely be, uh, some, and we do that here. We, we have, uh, as you know, uh, orphanages, and we have, uh, we have done ministry in other countries, in uh, Kenya. Uh, there are difficulties that come along with that, though, in terms of accountability and how do you keep an eye on things and make sure that th- these things are being run in a way that's a good stewardship of the money and of the time and of the resources that you have as a church. So I would say it's a, it's a good thing to go do foreign missions. Uh, it is not the, the most primary thing of a church, but if we can support that and we have people that are called to that and, and we feel uh, that, that we have the uh, flexibility with godly wisdom to send people to a foreign place or to support things in a foreign land and we're not um, sacrificing what we're doing locally, then I think it's a good thing. So that's where I would hold that priority. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, and I, I think we've seen just, I mean, it's amazing the people that God has brought to this church who have connections in Ukraine and Russia and, and Kenya and India. And I mean, there's just, I mean, you, you think about this church, we gather and we meet every week. And then, but, but from here, I mean, all over the world, there's the gospel being taken to people. So no one's going to, no one's going to say anything that, that, that is against that. I mean, it's a great thing. And the more we can do it, yeah, the, the better. I mean, I think it is something that is of utmost importance. And like Sandy said, I mean, I think as long as, as we're also doing what we need to do here, I think we certainly continue doing that and even more so if we're able. I think the only challenge with um, overseas missions is there's so many churches, especially Baptist churches, that support overseas missions, but they never take the gospel into their own backyard. 
And so I would like to see churches, I'd like to see our church to support uh, local missions, okay? So that means like providing resources and funds for local evangelists within the church that you can raise up to go out and to proclaim the gospel. Because there are giftings, like there are certain men that have the gifting of going out and street evangelizing. Uh, I think the church should support that just as much as overseas missions uh, bringing the gospel because we're in a, you know, we're in a pagan society now. <laughs> a general question. Uh, what is your view on the current trend and talk about Christian nationalism? Um, and what would be some of your concerns about that? And would you vote for Trump? The last part, I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> so I asked if I could start uh, because I, I knew this would come up. And so there's so many different definitions of Christian nationalism. I'm going to provide a definition uh, based upon a statement uh, from some guys that I know that came up with a statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel. I think it's a good definition, at least for me, to say, yes, I support this definition of Christian nationalism. Okay. So if you just bear with me. Uh, Christian nationalism is a set of governing principles rooted in Scripture's teaching that Christ rules as supreme Lord and King of all creation, who has ordained civil magistrates with delegated authority to be under him over the people to order their ordained jurisdiction by punishing evil and promoting good for his own glory and the common good of the nation. Christian nationalism is primarily concerned with the righteous rule of civil authorities not spiritual matters pertaining to salvation. The desire for a Christian nation is not a distraction from the gospel, but rather an effort to faithfully apply all of Scripture to all of life, including the public square. As such, Christian nationalism is not just for civil authorities, just as submitting to Christ's lordship is not just for civil authorities, but for all people. And it goes on, but that, I'll just stop there. So that's the definition that I tell people. I believe this type of Christian nationalism. I think there's a, a, a lot of confusion out there. Christians and believers, probably you two, are looking to Scripture on what does the church's role play with the civil magistrate. Um, since Christ does have all the authority, he gets to decide how governing authorities rule and reign. And they're supposed to rule or reign according to his law, not their own pragmatic ways, not what they think might be natural law. Uh, but God never, never gave the world to be governed by man. It was Greg Bonson who said, if there's no divine law above man's law, then man's law becomes absolute in his own eyes. And therefore, there's no barrier to totalitarianism. And so I believe the church has a duty, not just a right, but has a duty to speak God's law, just as John the Baptist spoke God's law to Herod, the Christian church, not just pastors, but pastors should, but the Christians should have a duty, the church has a duty, to speak God's law to the civil magistrate that, yes, there's separation of church and state, but there's not separation from the state and God. They're to submit to Christ and rule according to his authority. Uh, so that's Christian nationalism that I support and agree with. I think a lot of the, the issue right now is just the fact that you've got so many people using so many, I mean, they're throwing a term out there with no definition behind it. 
You've got some people using an, using that term in a derogatory way. You've got other people embracing it, saying yes, absolutely, and they're usually using a definition similar to that one. And then you've got some other people that are you know thinking we're trying to develop the you know first church of the United States or something like that. So you've got people just thinking about it from all different perspectives. But if you really just kind of take a step back and say, okay, well, what is the purpose of the civil the civil government? Well, it's to to reward good and to punish evil. I mean, we get that from Scripture, and I don't think that any of us would disagree with, yes, that's the role that our civil government should play. So if that's Christian nationalism, then, yeah, absolutely, I'm all for it. I mean, we are in a, we are in a, a society where we have a, a representative government. So right now, unfortunately, our government is representative of our society. We have a society that says that, that good is evil and that evil is good. Okay, well, that's shining through I mean, very clearly in the laws that are being passed here. So, yes, absolutely, I mean, we should be in favor of that, but we need to recognize that the gospel is the way to get there because it's only by changing people's hearts. So, yeah, I mean, whenever we have wicked rulers, we need to be holding them accountable, and we need to let them know that, yes, you're accountable to God, and we need to be sharing the gospel with those people so that God can use that to work in their hearts and change them from the inside out. I would have, yeah, the issue I would have with it is uh, the only, um, I would want to be careful that we don't try to do this from the outside in. You establish on the outside without worrying about the souls of men. Uh, if you if you are able to, uh, and most of these guys that are, are on board with Christian nationalism are, are people that believe that there's a victorious ending to this, that we're going to, in in some hundreds of years from now, we are going to, uh, take over there'll be a, a threshold that's crossed where we're going to have a mostly christian nation and so if that's true and we have people who are actually christians in leadership in in the government then of course we would we would say that's the way to do it we don't want to have an artificial external set of rules and 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 then forsake trying to reach men with the gospel uh, but i am with joel webin uh, on this that uh, christian nationalism gooder than transing kids uh we live in a place now where that's okay. I would rather deal with whether we're going to deal with Presbyterian law or Baptist law than whether we're dealing with whether it's okay to give hormone blockers to a five-year-old or something. So uh, I think we have to be careful to make sure that we don't forget the souls of men when we're talking about God's law, and then we just end up with some uh, external society. All right, excellent. Here's one that kind of came in late, and I'm going to be gracious. So it actually was addressed to you, Mark, but I'd like to hear you guys to comment on it. And I know this is without you getting any heads up, but see what you think. How do you explain the Trinity to a young Christian? How do you explain the Trinity to a young Christian? Um, of course, open up the Word of God, explain that there is one true God, Deuteronomy 6, uh, the Shema. You know, we only worship one true, eternal, living God. That one and true, eternal, living God uh, has three distinct persons that are all one. One in, um, and they're God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Uh, they are uh, distinct, but they're also, they're also one in, in nature. So they all submit um, um, to the perfect will of God the Father, 
Uh, you can go into the roles of each. God, the Father, elected from all uh, from eternity. If he's a believer, God elected from eternity that he would save you. Uh, Jesus, uh, God the Son, came and uh, did the redemptive work uh, to save you by living a holy and righteous life, dying on the cross under the wrath of God. And then the Holy Spirit uh, was sent in due time to convict you of your sins, to regenerate your heart, to bring you to Christ, and now he abides in you. Uh, so that, that would be a simplistic way I would try to explain it to a, to a new believer. And of course, you can go through kind of scripture texts on, on, on each of those. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's just making the distinction. You've got one God in essence, and yet you've got three persons who are all of the same essence. So they are all, you know, equally God. And, of course, you know, whenever we're talking to, when we're explaining this, we always want to resort to analogies. And we know that there's no analogy that, that you can go to because God is unlike anything that we have in creation um but yeah just trying to make that distinction but that distinction between person and essence uh, per- persons and essence um and yet at the same time trying to illustrate from the scriptures how all three persons are working in complete unity so he's not like a pizza not like a pizza yeah, that's partialism that yeah. i don't think i have a lot to add to that i, I would just also share scriptures that that um highlight the fact that Jesus is God at where it says in the Old Testament, like Isaiah chapter 6, and then you go to John chapter 12, where in the Old Testament it's talking about Yahweh, and then John chapter 6 clearly talking about Jesus. They're both God. So there's a lot of support for this. Um, Psalm 95, I think, is another place. Uh, Hebrews. There are several places where you see a, a correlation between the Father's God, Jesus is God, the Spirit's God. They're all God. And so I would uh, probably take them to some of those places. All right, excellent. So, sorry, we don't have any uh, questions from the floor. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, if somebody's forty years old, they have a. Um, we're risking precedence here by answering right, a question right. from. Well, I'm going to do it though. Um, but yeah, you know, people have the ability to process things at different. And just because you're 40 doesn't mean you're able to process it, by the way. You have some 15-year-olds that are um, able to do that better than some 40-year-olds, I'm sure. When I was 40, I wouldn't maybe have been able to. Anyway, long story short, um, you, you just you have to know the person and know the ability that they have to understand and where they are spiritually, and then you, you move from there. If, if this has been recorded, Alton violated the standards. So if anything goes awry here and it gets really out of control, it had, it had nothing to do with me. All right, here's, here's a couple of more. And we only have about probably 12 minutes left. So y'all might want to drag these out. I don't know. Okay, so here we go. Uh, kind of long, going back to eschatology for a few moments. Um, regarding covenant and dispensationalism, do you believe yourself to be more covenant or dispensationalism or a mix Okay, um, first, uh, that was also to our church. Uh, there was a question there, I think, on that part. But um, for our church first, I think our church, we have Covenant Baptist Church in our name. So I think in some ways we, in our salvation, in our, our uh, doctrine of soteriology, we are Calvinistic. We believe that everybody that's ever been saved in the history of the world has been saved by faith in Christ uh, throughout all time. Not a different way of being saved. 
uh, for Israel, not a different way of being saved for Christians now and not for Israel in the future if you're a dispensationalist. There's only one way that you're ever saved, which is uh, by the work of the man, Jesus himself. Uh, when I look at Scripture, uh, so, so that's, that's that part. I think in other ways, in, in some of our eschatology uh, here, as, as what's been taught some, I think that we, we lean more dispensational than we do uh, covenant in other areas. So I don't think we're strictly 1689 covenant uh, uh, you know, covenantal church in some ways. We are in, in other ways. So I think our church is a mix. Uh, personally, I hold to a covenantal view. Um, Mike, you can beer check, you put your fingers in your ears for a minute here. So, um, you don't get me afterwards, but, um, but no, I think, uh, when I look at the scripture, I don't think that covenant theology is just some framework that people are laying over the scripture and trying to, to get what they want out of it. I think it, it's borne out by the scriptures itself. God deals covenantally with people throughout history. He's always done it that way. He's doing it that way now in the new covenant. And so uh, I would be much more uh, comfortable being covenantal. Now, what that means is that I don't take a woodenly literal approach to some scripture the way a dispensationalist would, and I don't chop up history the way a dispensationalist would. Uh, So I'm able to, I see more continuity from the Old Testament into the New Testament than I do discontinuity. Uh, not quite as much continuity as our Presbyterian brothers, but almost as much, not, but not quite. We're in the New Covenant. Not, uh, we're not, we're, you could talk to me afterwards if you want to know all the other details, but, but I am more, uh, more covenantal than dispensational, yes. Yeah, and I'm, I'm the same. I mean, I believe that God has, you know, from the beginning, he's, he saved he saved the Jews the same way. I mean, they have the same means of salvation through the covenant of grace that, w- that we do today. God has one people. The unbelieving Jews, obviously, broken off, as Romans 11, 11 tells us. Um, you know, those, those branches have been cut off the tree. We've been, as Gentiles, grafted in. Thank the Lord for that. And then we know that in the future, there's all of Israel will be saved, whatever that may mean. Um, but it, it does seem like some ethnic Jews and, and large quantities will be saved. And it's going to be through the gospel, the same gospel that saves us. Yes, I am uh, covenantal. Uh, there's also some more um, breakouts to that. There's also new covenant theology. That's what a lot of reform guys are holding to nowadays. So God, I don't see works in dispensations, different rules, different times, different ways to be saved. Um, God established the covenant of works, which man broke. So he established the covenant of grace. Uh, it was uh, alluded to or foretold in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Um, Baptist, historic Baptist covenant theology is that the covenant of grace was fully realized in the new covenant. And so there's the difference between Presbyterian covenant theology is that the covenant of grace was dispensed with the old covenants. So the covenant of grace is sort of overarching and God um, dispensed or displayed the covenant of grace in the old covenants, okay? And so the historic Baptist theology is that the covenant of grace uh, was prophesied, but it never came to fruition until Jesus established the new covenant. So therefore, the new covenant is covenant of grace. And so there's, there's, that's where the historic Baptists got believers' baptism uh, because they saw that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, included regenerate and non-regenerate believers, but the New Covenant only includes regenerate believers, and therefore you only baptize those who are regenerate. The uh, Presbyterian Covenant theology is that, as the Old Testament, you had uh, unconverted and converted believers. Since the Covenant of Grace, conti- you know, 
it has always been. It was dispensed in the old covenant, and now it's dispensed in the new covenant. In the new covenant, you have unregenerate believers, babies baptized, and you have regenerate believers. So, although again, they don't hold to those baptized babies being uh, saved at that point, they still they they believe they have to be regenerate. Uh, so, and that's in the, the the covenant in the the chapter in our Baptist confession. If you compare it with the Westminster, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, it talks about just what I, what I said, and that's one of the big differences between the Westminster Confession and the 1689 uh, Confession. So. All right, let's talk about just a couple of seconds. We have a couple of minutes, rather, um, about spiritual, spiritual warfare. Do you see or can you see or discern the difference between Satan's attacks and um, the Lord's discipline in your life as a Christian? Is there any you can tell or discern? Anybody? This is a free for all. Y'all notice how Mark's microphone's a lot deeper than mine. I think he's got some octave thing on it, making it more rich and deep. Have you noticed that this whole time? I'm kind of. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, really, I, I don't think Satan. Uh, Satan's not omnipresent. He's not God. He's not everywhere at one time like God is. I know that demons are real and. His minions are real and they're everywhere, but I generally don't spend much time in my day thinking about Satan being after me. I have enough problems on my own with my own struggles and fights against uh, sin and temptation. Now, no doubt about it, he, uh, he could be after me, and, and there are moments when he could be paying attention to me, and, and uh, I don't know how fast the, the telegram system is between the demons and Satans, and they're all over the place, so... Um, I, but I, I typically don't live in a, a mystical type mentality world. I'm dealing with on the ground day to day, and uh, the guy pulls out in front of me. Am I moment by moment living in the spirit and not uh, saying a comment I shouldn't say? The dog jumps up on me. Am I going to kick my dog? These are the things. I don't think Satan needs to be involved in that for me. And so I'm sure that there are probably things I would miss in that, but um, I, I don't necessarily have a whole lot of things that are that seem to me to be orchestrated from uh, from satan himself against me i guess i suppose it could be i'm not saying that that's not true but i just don't have a a, a real mentality of looking at things that way and so i'm i'm more um my own problems my own sinfulness and deal with that and then if there is something like that that's that's bigger on the horizon you know generally we have a we have the ability when things are, are big in our lives to handle them pretty well because we see them from a lot farther off. But it's more the day-to-day, moment-by-moment sin problems or issues that come upon me that I would have a problem dealing with. So, so you, don't, you don't bind Satan, like, daily? No. I thought, I thought you did. I thought that was done I in Colossians 2. I, I didn't know no. that was. Okay. Already bound. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> See, nothing to worry about with that. Colossians, Colossians two. I mean, what are we going to do? You know, we gotta, we gotta live with that. So, I mean, I, I, I think, yeah, Satan. I mean, we, we have enough sinful tendencies on our own that Satan just takes a bad situation, and I think we can agree that he makes them worse. But we have enough struggles on our own, and I think if we're, we stay in the Word, we stay in prayer, we pray, God, wherever my blind spot, my blind spots are. You know, where my, I may have sin that I'm not seeing, please convict me. If something comes up and kind of brings that issue to light, I think we can probably count on the fact that that's the discipline of God. 
if it turns us and is pointing us in the right direction, because if it's something that's going to lead us to repentance, yeah, I think it's safe to say that's probably God's discipline. If it's leading us in another direction, no, that's probably something else. There absolutely is spiritual warfare. I think that's a, a tendency that reformed folks can go the other way. Um, if you don't believe us, you know, go to go to Planned Parenthood with him, right? Go to the Pride Festival with me. You'll see demons come out from the woodworks, okay? There is spiritual warfare, but if we understand God's sovereignty, uh, then we're going to rest no matter if, it, if it's Satan buffeting us. God could use Satan to buffet us and to discipline us. So it could all work together. But if we understand the sovereignty of God, then whatever does come our way, we know that God has decreed it from the beginning of time for his glory and for our good. And so we can, you know, instead of trying to figure out, is this Satan attacking me or is this God disciplining me? You know, just seek, seek Christ. Use it as an opportunity. God must be drawing me near. I must be, maybe I'm missing something in my life. Uh, so, you know, God is sovereign. You can rest your head on that. Rest your head on the pillow with that doctrine. This is going to be the last question. All right. So, and by the way, if you if your question wasn't asked, what I tried to do is to make sure I at least get, gathered from each person a question that offered one and got through some of them. I got through two of them. But if your question was not asked, you're welcome to talk to them later. Call them or however you want to do that. So, Sandy, you and Chris and Mark have all been in this whole process to be ordained as an elder in the church. And this is going to be official coming up September 10th. It will be a legal thing. You will literally be a minister in South Carolina. So, with that said, what can we as a church, what can we as believers do to support you, to encourage you, to facilitate this? Uh, you know, the Bible talks about that those that rule over you should be able to rule with joy. So how can we do that as a church? And this is for all of you. So just close out with that. How can we do that? I would say, uh, obviously, it might seem too simplistic, but uh, prayer is uh, really important. If you would pray for me and pray for Chris and Mark, this is, uh, this is the way that God will, will uh, help us if you will commit to praying for us and because if you're praying just like in Philemon if you're praying for somebody uh, it it changes your attitude toward them and so uh, we realize that we're in a lot of ways uh, it, it we're not it's not that we're unqualified it's just that we just don't feel all that qualified some days and when will I ever feel qualified to, to, to bring God's word to God's people it's a very difficult thing to do and so prayer is absolutely essential we need that uh from you and then um being being committed to showing up to it's a lot nicer this is practical and maybe selfish but it's a lot nicer to to share god's word with more people than than fewer people and so if you can if you can be at meetings and attend those that's wonderful and it's encouraging not only to us but to everybody else and um and then I think one thing that you could do practically to, to help elders is to take care of first-level conflict on your own between believers. When you have a problem with another believer, instead of automatically running to an elder or getting them involved, do, do the scriptural thing, which is to go to your brother and sister first, try to work it out uh, amongst you, and then that, that's a sign of maturity, and that also alleviates a, a lot of... Um, you know, trying to get involved in every single situation because we love to get involved, to, to talk and to, to try to help and counsel and work things out and figure things out. But uh, if that 
if that can be done within the congregation, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, I would just echo prayer, obviously. Um, and one thing I would add is, I mean, if, if you ever have a question about something I do, and I'm sure you would feel the same way, I'm sure all the leadership feels the same way. I mean, if you ever have an issue or a question about something we say, I mean, come to us directly and just ask us rather than going off and, you know, maybe trying to get someone else's opinion first. Because, I mean, I, I admit, I'm human. I do not know it all. And I told someone earlier, I kind of feel like I did back when um, I got out of law school. You know, I, people expect you to know all the answers, but no, I, I don't know all the answers. I just know where to look to get the answers. So, yeah, I'm going to make mistakes, and, you know, and I appreciate your, your grace and mercy in advance. But just, I mean, if I, if I mess something up or forget something, just come to me, please. Yeah, piggyback on that. I try to share with uh, newer folks at our church that are coming in membership, like, um, I will offend you at some point. That's just natural because we offend each other. And so to come, you know, to me, and we, I've seen, you've probably seen havoc wreaked in churches where people are offended and they either disappear off the face of the earth, never see them again, or they go tell other people about, you know, their offense. And that can cause tremendous division within a church. But uh, Third John um, verse 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear my children walking in truth. So you can support uh, elder, your elders uh, by walking in truth. Um, I think we've been in churches where we kind of see, you know, there's two types of people within churches. Usually there's givers and takers, right? Uh, we should all have the mentality that we come to give ourselves and our gifts to the bride of Christ and not to just come to church to be a taker. And I think that brings joy to the shepherds of the church when they see God's children coming to give of their time, talent, gifts, and resources. Uh, so those are, those are a couple ways that you can support the elders. Okay, what do y'all think? Pretty good? Excellent, was it? Just so you know, I gave them all those answers ahead of time. Except the eschatology one. Exactly, except the eschatology one. (laughs) I want to just say thank you, Sandy. Love you, brother. You mean a lot to me. Chris, the same. Love you so much. These guys are so important to this church. Alton's important. These guys are important. The new guys that are coming up, essential to the leadership, the future of this church. And so please pray for them. Mark is a dear brother. He is, when I'm around him, I'm convicted just how committed he is to the Lord and the things he does. He is a breath of fresh air. When you talk about men going into ministry, so you keep these guys in prayer. Let's pray together as we close out and remind you, you're welcome to stay for church with Mark, and uh, it's going to be great. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together. It is a blessing. Lord, I am just so amazed to see your grace in our life. We thank you for raising up Sandy and Chris and Mark, and we pray, God, that you would continue to grow them in Christ. Help us all, Lord, to support them, to love them to enable them to serve the Lord with joy and gladness. I pray, Father, that you would protect them from the evil one who desires them. I pray, God, that you would protect their families, that all of their children would come to know Jesus Christ early, and that you would do a great work of grace in their lives and make them great servants of Christ, because we're all very weak men, and we need you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.